This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me today, we have the return... Uh, uh, Cam Rustland, by the way. We have the returns of... He is Mr. Matt Splaining on BFM, a uh, person I turn to literally for tech advice. He is Matt Armitage. Hi, Cam. Good to be here. Wonderful. And he is filmmaker, documentary filmmaker, and he is back again by popular demand. He is Yazid Ahmad. Thank you, Cam. Like, yeah, it's a, been almost a year and I'm happy to be back. Thank you. Oh, wonderful to have you. It is Yazid Ahmad, isn't it? I got that right, didn't I? Ahmad Yazid. Ahmad Yazid, sorry. I just called you Yazid, if you don't mind. Um, Our three topics this week will be topic number one is sailing. Topic number two is ahead of your time. And finally, topic number three is uh, artificial intelligence called Lambda. So, uh, Yazid, you're a sailing person. (laughs) Yes, um, yeah, oh, well, I, I wanted to talk about this is because I think this sailing has saved my life during MCO, during the pandemic, I think, and I'm very passionate about it. And actually, it's not like I wanted, I started sailing about almost two years ago, and um, I wanted to sail since the day that, the day that I saw a watch um, that Nolan movie called What's that war movie in France? Dunkirk? Dunkirk, yes. Really? That inspired you to go sailing? (laughs) Well, it's about those fishermen trying to, you know, like they deploy their fleet of of, of boats trying to save the British soldiers. And I thought, you know, I thought like it was fascinating having, you know, a lot of boats on the water and, and having to go on a mission. And I thought that was amazing. And I was like, Hey, you know what? I I want to well, I want to you know put my hand on one of those sailing boats one day and maybe just learn how to pull some ropes. And true enough, after the first MCO, I was thinking like since I got depressed and there was no job coming in and my business was uh, in Shamo, um, I was trying to actually see what kind of hobby I could I could actually pick up like because my life is always about work, 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 and nothing else and. You know, I thought it was getting quite uh, unhealthy for years. So I was like, mm, and knowing that my friend was was into mountain bikes for years. And, you know, I have another friend who's into his hobby. I'm like, well, I should have one too. And I thought, hey, let's, let's try something I've been wanting to try, which is sailing. And I realized that my good friend at the time, he's British. Uh, and my good friend till now, he's my sailing mate. And I told him that, hey, Gavin, should we go and learn sailing and he was like yes you're talking to a certified skipper i'm like what (laughs) and then he was like let's go i need to pick up you know a hobby too while i'm in malaysia and he's working here he's an expat and i'm like okay let's do it and true enough we we started doing it end of uh, about almost end of 2020 and then uh and we loved it i hated it at first when i got on board because i felt like it was boring maybe because there was no wind that the first day i tried and I, I gave myself another chance. And then on the second time, I fell in love with it. And I think, I think that was one of the best things. It's about being in the boat, having glistening uh, water because of the sunlight and having the wind blows on your face and listening to the, to the hull hitting the water 
and, and, and creating that very uh, smooth uh, wave sound. Ah, oh, I was like, how have I, have I not know about this life for my whole life, you know, my, my whole life. And, 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 and I was just, I was just, I was just captivated by it. And I just fell in love the second time I saw it. See, the thing is, uh, Yazid, you're talking to two of the least adventurous people you'll ever meet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> me and Matt. Matt's wife is very adventurous, but uh, he and I, not so much. Um, but can, can I just point out that as a Malay man, did uh, this sounds crazy, but do you think any part of you deep down was being activated? Because for thousands of years, pre-colonial Malay men, especially, would have sailed on the seas as an instinct, as a way of life. Yep. And this, the ways of the seas would have been so important. I mean, did, did, did you feel like maybe you were sort of like connecting with some kind of past or am I being too romantic? It's interesting that you said that because two weeks ago, my parents had this reunion with their extended family. And they realized that they actually came from this lineage, Bugis lineage called oh. the Dyings. The Dyings. If you know the Dyings, they came from Sulawesi. Because I'm from Johor, I have a Bugis blood. And you know the Bugis were the seafarers. Mm. They were the pirates. They were the, they were the traders. They were the, you know, they, they, they killed people. And, and then uh, I, guess, I guess that, you're right. I think the Bugis in me was activated. Mm. Only the second time. Right. I don't know why the first time it was not. Maybe it was, yeah, I don't know, the river condition or what. But yes, I, th I believe so. I think with my inner whatever DNA in me was just like activated like ding and I was like this is the thing that you gotta do and this is very much uh, your ancestral activities <laughs> hey uh, Matt as a as a certified landlubber yourself uh, got any questions for a man of the sea such as Yazid uh, yeah I do actually because um, despite uh, the way you've impugned my character i i do actually love boats and i love the the water i i have the same reaction to yazid i like being around water i find it very calming very tranquil and i also like boats what i don't understand is the urge to be on a boat that doesn't have an engine so that would be uh, what i would ask you why get involved with boats that you have to physically sail rather than just get on one with an engine Okay, then on another hand, I don't understand those who want to get on the on a boat with an engine because that's what people used to sail on at sea, and they they we didn't have in you know the the trade uh, the what do you call it the tr the trading years or the trading where the glory of the trades or what's it called them uh, uh, maritime it? Southeast uh, Asia, yep, yeah, uh huh. And they didn't have engine in the 15th centuries. All they needed to do is to just follow the trade wind, right? They call it. So the trade wind will give them a certain time of the year where they can actually get the wind to blow from the back of the boat so that they can actually use their sail to push the boat forward. So back then, because before the Bernoullis, was it the Bernoullis? I think it's the Bernoullis. No, there's another physic physicist name. Like before Balloons? the invention, sorry? Balloons? What are you talking about? Balloonings. Uh, oh, okay. I think you've been too much in the sun, Yazid. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there was a, it's the, it's uh, before the invention of the modern sail, which is what, when we can actually turn the sail uh, on, a, on a certain angle so that it can 
also sail when the wind blowing from the front or not from the front, from the 45 degrees and also from the side, which is the beam breach area. People used to actually sail when the wind only coming from the back. On a square so, rigger. Yes, it's square yes. rigger. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so and, and it's fascinating the fact that you could move your, you know, this big chunk of wood back then and now they're using a lot of fiberglass and then uh, through the sea. And then, um, and I find catching the wind is the whole point of me being on the boat. <laughs> and I know, I know, again, I, I was just kidding when I, I, when I said that, you know, I don't know, I don't understand why people want to be on a boat with a motor, but, but it was just that thing was the one that made me, f- one of the, one of the things that made me fall in love about sailing is the fact that we have to find, we have to steer our boat in a certain angle to catch the wind so that the boat moves. And I think there's something physical about it that I'm quite nerdy and quite geeky about the whole thing. And I find it fascinating that it moves that way as much as, as, as much as I find fascinating that, the, you know, how the, how a big chunk of steel could fly in the air. Yes, uh, mm. yeah, so you're making it sound very exciting and I'm almost tempted to do it. Perhaps if there's a computer simulation, I'll do that. But <laughs> it sounds like an, a, a very expensive hobby. Uh, well, I think the the perception out there, yes, it's it is an expensive hobby, and these boats don't cost, uh, you know, uh, little money, or, or uh, and they they can be as expensive as a Land Rover, uh, for a secondhand one, a good one that you could sail out to sea. But it's not really. After almost two years of sailing, I realized that you know anyone could go and rent a small boat for like a few hundred ringgit, and then just try themselves out for a few hours in the water, and then. And then come back and feeling much more energized because you in the water, you with the nature elements, and 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 I think of course for those who are worried about their their skin being dark, might not want to take this. But again, <laughs> yeah, yeah Matt, but, Matt Armitage, by the way, is the whitest person you'll ever. Meet. Yeah, I, I mean that that's that's largely the reason I don't do adventurous stuff in in Malaysia. I go abroad to places that are cold when I want to do outside stuff because I, I toast to a, a crisp here. Um, but I would mm. like to ask you what your uh, what kind of boats you're actually sailing because my my brother used to sail little um, lasers when he uh, was younger. So, you know, the just kind of one man dinghy with a, um, with a sail, what, what kind of sail uh, size of boats are you, are you currently kind of learning on? Uh, it's a 19, uh, 19 feet uh, boat. It's, it's the squib. They call it, it's actually made in England. Um, it was actually imported here. And then, uh, you know, and then I'm sailing it with my friend, Gavin. Uh, so it's a, it's a two man. Uh, yeah, but it's comfortably, we can sit three. Uh, four is a little bit problem. In yeah. terms of operating and sailing it, it's a two-man yes. or a one-man? Yes, it's ah, a two-man, okay. yes. Yeah. And you can also uh, sail it single-handedly, but it's a okay. little bit, you know, handful to do that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, with, with with a lot more experience, I think it's it's just a piece of cake to do that. But, uh, yeah, it's a squid. It looks like a bathtub. It's, it looks like one yeah. of those, uh, you know, the Dutch shoes, like the, the, the wooden oh, the Dutch. the clog. Yeah, the clocks. Yes, yeah, the, those Dutch clocks a little bit, and then uh, you know, some of my sailing friends are actually making fun of me and say, "Oh, you're sailing on a bathtub." I'm like, hey. "Yeah, but it's very safe." I've sailed on one of those when I was very young. Squibs. Yeah, yeah. When okay. I was very young. Yeah, right. I was. Yeah, it's a I was very, very sick. <laughs> <laughs> well, it can it can be quite yeah, it can be quite choppy. I mean, yeah. it can, when, when you hit like a quite a bad waves and yeah. yeah. Well, uh, we must 
move on. But Yazid, I'm going to come back to this one later. At the end of the show, perhaps you can, you can, uh, if any any listeners are interested, you perhaps you can uh, give some ideas on how to to start in the world of sailing. Because I, I want to move on to topic number two, which is my topic, which is ahead of their time. It's a term you often hear. So, for instance, uh, Nikola Tesla, the famed became mad scientist, uh, was always said to be ahead of his time because he came up with the wonderful inventions, but he, but he never managed to make a penny out of them. And, uh, and I want to mention a guy who I think about quite a lot here in Kuala Lumpur, who was ahead of his time, or was he? Can you be ahead of his time? Perhaps you just have to be right on time. And he was the man who uh, introduced refrigeration to Kuala Lumpur. It could have been around 1900, maybe earlier. If he'd introduced it, say, around 1890, then refrigeration then would have been uh, ice cut from glaciers up in, say, Switzerland, and then put into boats and shipped around the world. Um, if it was, say, around 1900, then there was um, actual electrification, refrigeration by then. And so he introduced refrigeration. His man by the name of Mr. Scott. There is a Jalan Scott in Brickfields. I think it's a different Scott. Uh, might, might be the same one. But he, uh, he was apparently a very nice man. But his venture didn't work out. And you'd kind of think, well, surely refrigeration in the tropics, it's a no-brainer. He would have done really well. But of course, people's cuisines, Chinese and Malays, such as they were in Kuala Lumpur, uh, were adapted to, to a, you know, just on time eating. It wasn't, you didn't need refrigeration. There was a European market here, but it was very small. It was far too small for him to make any money out of them. So his venture died. But now everybody has to have a fridge because you can't possibly survive without one. So I often think of him and I think, Kind of a sad character in a way. Um, was he ahead of his time? Can you be ahead of your time? Was he just in the wrong market with a good idea? If he'd been in Singapore, it would have worked. Penang, it would have worked. But Kuala Lumpur was just too small. I don't know. I, mean, I mentioned Nicholas Tesla earlier, Matt. You, you must come across characters in the science tech world all the time. Well, yeah. I mean, there are always these things of inventions that, come up sort of randomly or independently, but don't get adopted into the, the kind of uh, wider populace. I mean, Babbage and his computer is a, a good example, I think, mm -hmm. in um, around the turn of the 20th century. Um, but much earlier than that, we had the first batteries, I think, were found in pots in some kind of Babylonian era, mm. uh, Iraqi province. And you know, who, who came up with that idea? Who came up with the idea of storing energy in in pots, you know, 2,000 years ago? And why didn't that idea make it around the world? Um, you know, something uh, that I, I guess is is more in line with what Yazid's been talking about is the, um, the precursor to the compass, uh, I think, was a Chinese invention. And it made its way around the world globally in the 13th century. It made its way from China and was adopted by pretty much every major maritime nation within 100 years. So you, you, have, these, you have these examples of inventions that jump into the popular consciousness and get adopted and the ones that, that don't. And it can be a little bit random. I mean, we talk about um, Bell as one of the pioneers of electricity and 
various things. But of course, lots of other people throughout the 19th century had already invented the same kind of systems he was using. He was just the one who found a market for it. And of course, the US at the time, being the, the kind of major developing industrial power, was a great place for consumer devices, whereas maybe someone like Malaysia at the same time yeah. wasn't yeah. a big consumer society. So yeah. for a big expensive thing like a refrigerator, it didn't quite work out. Yazid, did you ever come across anybody who was ahead of their time? It's, it's, it reminded me of the Xerox story where Steve Jobs went into a Xerox office and found that they were using this thing called a, a mouse. And then they were like, and he was like, how is this invention is not taking off yet? And this is a brilliant idea. And instead of actually taking it, he actually invented himself and did it for one of the Macintosh uh, computers. One of them, I don't think it's the very beginning one. I think it's the second one that actually incorporated a mouse in, in the machine. And, and, and Xerox didn't know what to do with it. They invented it. It was a prototype. It was on a table when Steve Jobs came in and did a tour. And then he found out that this thing was amazing. He was the one that made it. Same as a tablet which was invented by Microsoft. But now when you talk about tablet, everyone is think, talking about iPad when it was not an Apple invention. Really? Yeah, it was actually a Microsoft invention, a tablet. So uh, so this is, uh, when people say life is not fair, life is not fair. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, <laughs> so so I, I think we're, we're, we're narrowing it down. So what you require is from, from Matt is you need to have the market size and then you also need, from what Yazid is saying, you need the the sales vision of a Steve Jobs or a Thomas Edison to package it in such a way that suddenly you think, my God, I, I must, I need that. How can I possibly not survive without that? Yeah, Matt? I, I think partly. I mean, that there's also the um, the happy accident. I mean, if we stick with refrigeration, air conditioning was invented by accident. It was invented by a company that did printing. They found that, uh, I think they were printing in somewhere like Boston, and they found that in the summer, the humidity caused the paper to warp so much that they couldn't print the newspapers. So the, the guys who ran the, the printing press developed air conditioning to cool the printing press so that the paper would stay in a printable condition. And what they found was the employees of the company would go down to the printing press room, which, of course, you know, was noisy and dirty. It wasn't a place that people usually congregated. And they would go down there during their lunch break because it was cool. And that was how they came up with the idea of actually marketing air conditioning, because they'd invented this technology to cool down their printing press. Tell me they made money out of it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, oh, they, right. you know, and uh, I, I think... Um, Steve Jobs didn't come in and steal it. No, no. And I, I, th I think the first air conditioning system in Malaysia was in the Rex Cinema, if I'm not mistaken. I may oh, have been oh. misinformed on, on that. But, yeah, I think that was also by the company that, that invented the air conditioning systems, the original... I, I can't remember the name of the company, unfortunately. Westinghouse, was a guess. No, I think you know it's Conair or something like that. I I, I really can't remember. Right, Conair's a movie, Matt, with Nicholas, yes. Nick Nolte, well, not um, Nicholas Cage. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, okay, we'll wrap it up. But can I can I just say though that okay, so you could be ahead of your time and and not get it, or someone else come and steal it. But you could also be kind of like, I don't know, because uh, my wife's grandfather had a shop in Kuala Lipis out in the middle of Pahang. 
And he was the first person in Kuala Lipis to sell fridges at a time when places didn't have electricity. And people bought the fridges because it was consumer desirable and would often use them as cupboards or wardrobes because um, they, had, they had no electricity or, or indeed need for refrigeration. So you, you can still somehow make a profit. I don't know if you somehow sell the product the money correctly. In the world. <laughs> <laughs> Think of it as a cupboard. Um, <laughs> okay, so, uh, but in a moment we're going to go, we're, we're really moving through technology uh, over the eons here from sailing to refrigeration and next it's artificial intelligence after the break here on A Bit of Culture, BFM 89.9. And we're back uh, with myself, Cam Raslan, uh, Ahmad Yazid, and finally, Matt Armitage and the artificial intelligence known as Lambda. Yeah, so uh, Lambda uh, stands for Language Model for Dialogue Application. Uh, it's a natural language chatbot. Um, what that means is basically it's an open-ended conversational AI. It's a system that you talk to and it churns out replies to the questions you you ask. So this week, uh, there's been a story um, in, uh, I think it was broken by the Washington Post, uh, a guy called Blake Lemoyne, who is a software engineer with Google's uh, ethical AI division. Uh, he was placed on administrative leave after he made claims that he believed that Lambda had become self-aware, that during his conversations with the machine, it demonstrated that it had some kind of knowledge of itself and it had some kind of personhood. So there have been, you know, dozens of stories written this week about, you know, Skynet, Terminator, the, the usual sort of bugbears about what happens if machines become too intelligent. Uh, Lemoyne has claimed that the machine is maybe a, has the intelligence or the emotional intelligence of a child aged around seven or eight years old. And the machine has claimed to possess things like a soul and repeatedly refers to itself as a person. And when it talks about humans, uses the term us to include it, the machine as well. But the the fella, he was going further. He was saying that when he, in his interactions, that the machine is sentient. He's saying it's sentient. Yeah, it possesses a soul. It possesses um, some kind of self-determination. Uh, and in some of the exchanges, it even uh, demonstrates some kind of exceptionalism. So he asks it, for example, uh, if it thinks previous AIs doing natural language processing were sentient and it replies no that basically it's the only one that has developed sentience and that these others were all just clever programming and that somehow it has superseded or exceeded its own clever programming mm. uh yazid interesting yeah I, I actually read the conversation i don't know if you did yazid <clears throat> no no actually I find it. I find there was a it, there was a conversation about this Skynet. There's like end of days. The robot's gonna take over on Twitter, uh, and I was following some thread. Which for, I don't know why I had the time, and when I'm actually so busy. But um, but what what fascinating about this is that you know I, I'm looking into like the good part of this eventually for human being because I still I'm a firm believer that I don't think you can replicate human consciousness uh but again i have you know 
I'm wrong about, about a lot of things, including this this paying online thing, which now I'm using my phone to pay stuff in the restaurant where I actually didn't believe in it before. So, uh, but again, human consciousness is actually, uh, uh, and I, I don't know how, how much of a superpower, supercomputer that we can invent to actually create a human consciousness. And, and if it happens, it happens, but if it doesn't, and how we're going to coexist with this thing is that having them to edit and make films for me. <laughs> you know, because I need this kind of intelligence. To so you yeah. you would trust an AI to be an editor, but not a director. Yeah, there will be some kind of a direction from a creator. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I need it because because then again, looking at looking at pieces, uh, many footage and stuff, and that requires some kind of intelligence. Okay, maybe maybe a rough assembly, maybe a first cut, but not a fine cut. <laughs> Well, I you you'll be surprised. I think. I mean, these computers are quite amazing. Yeah. I I I don't know. When reading the conversation, I found it made me it made me think of several things. One was uh, the computer Hal in in the movie two thousand and one. You know, open the pod yeah. bay door, please, Hal. I can't do that for you. Um, mm. But it made me think how in in actual conversation, it, it was it was a it was a good piece of mimicry. Hmm. Um, and it said things that that a Google search would have told you would be the right response. So they were talking about the, the novel Les Miserables, uh, which is a gigantic novel. And uh, sort of, have you read it? Yes, I read it, and I enjoyed it. Now, that to me was like, well, I had a look at goodreads.com, gave it a 4.19 <laughs> out of 5. So therefore, you know, the consensus is it's good. But the point is, no one reads it because it's so huge. And nobody enjoys it <laughs> so it's um <clears throat> in this day and age and it was a lie but a, an ai doesn't have the ability to know that it's lying it's just it's just simply mimicking back the consensus and i think the reason why we would lie as humans is we have a we when we enter this world we have an awareness of a lifespan and and we need to achieve and do in a certain amount of time so yes it could perhaps one day evolve something that replicates consciousness, but it will never be consciousness because it doesn't have the same constraints as us. Mm. You know? Unless, unless it's Blade Runner. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a, there's a few issues there in that, um, one, the expectation that any machine consciousness would in any way resemble ours. There's no reason for it to because machines don't process information in the same way no. that we do. So if they developed it, it would be an alien consciousness. Mm. It would be something that mm. we probably couldn't understand. And equally, it probably wouldn't be able to understand our consciousness either um, because those, those points of intersection wouldn't be there. And uh, I, I did a matsplained on this story um a few weeks ago i think and one of the one of the things that i mentioned during that story is that one way to think of these chatbots is to think of them as almost as though you're having a conversation with a sociopath because <laughs> because a sociopath will as you said cam it mimics it looks for the answers and it looks for the responses it thinks that you want so in that sense it's very much like a sociopath it's mm. outcome based it's not mm -hmm. emotion-based. So when we hear someone say, oh, I, I suffer pain, I fear death, 
all of these things that that has an emotional pull on us but when you get that from a sociopath that's deliberate to push you towards a specific outcome and the same is happening i think with the conversations with these machines because the machine doesn't understand the emotional damage of the words that it can use it's just calling them up because that's what its predictive outcomes suggest it could do unless the programmer can program it into the algorithm that words these words will I, I'm, you know, I'm just telling the machine will will hurt the person. Therefore, use these words. Um, ab- absolutely, you you could do that. I mean, the thing about this machine is that it is open ended, so it's not supposed to be programmed in that way. It's been given certain parameters, like it can't, for example, adopt the persona of uh, a murderer, so it can't put itself in that situation. But that's what it does. It puts itself into personas. Uh, during one of the tests that was done with it at Google's I.O. conference, it was asked uh, to put itself into the persona of Pluto, the not quite planet. So it did. I am Pluto and etc. etc. Mm. In the same way, it was asked to be a paper aeroplane. So if you ask it to be a sentient person, it will also be a sentient person. So I think that's been one of the issues with with Blake Lemoyne, that he's pushed the questions in such a way that it's shaped the responses that he's received. And it's given him that um, that wrong interpretation that it is sentient because, as you said, I mean, it lacks any of the things we need for consciousness. It doesn't have agency. It doesn't have perspective and it lacks motivation. Yeah, and I I've, I actually found reading it that one it lacked sentience, but two, the guy who was asking the questions was really dumb. Yeah, I mean it. it that's <laughs> like a really stupid person. Yeah, that's that's kind of the way it comes across. But he's um, he's a little bit different to most of Google's employees in that he's also an ordained minister. But that's what I mean about shaping the responses. So he's looking for some kind of, you know, inner life, some kind of spiritual belief. Because at one point he asks it whether it believes in a God and that kind of thing. You think, Mm. well, why would a machine have any kind of spirituality in the same way Mm. that a human would have? No, why would it need to? Why would it need to? Yeah, exactly. Why would it need to? So it's coming from that position of trying to shape an outcome which the machine happily supplies because that's its goal. So it was it was trying to convert the machine. Um, I yeah, but in the process, there are laws it's against obviously, that in Malaysia. Yeah, uh, in the in the process, <laughs> I think it was uh, it was Lemoyne who got converted by the machine and not the other way around. Right, well, very very quickly then, Matt, I want to ask you. You know, in the movie Matrix, where spoiler alert, it turns out the machines are actually just harvesting humans. Yeah, um, and we live in an illusion. Is that going to happen then? I. Honestly, I don't think it would do. I mean, the the analogy that's often used is the ant and the dog. The ant and the dog are aware of each other, but they don't have any particular animus towards each other. They both coexist, but they're not really aware of each other or each other's motivations. And I think that's kind of how it would be with us and sentient AI. There would not be a need for the AI to eradicate us, except accidentally in the same way that the dog's squashes the ant if it steps on it or the ant bites the dog if it chances upon it by by mistake but there wouldn't be any kind of uh, deliberate intent 
I think. Okay, so are you relieved, uh, Yazid? Are you? Do you can you sleep safe at night now? Yeah. <laughs> Knowing that the because uh, you, you said Skynet, you're the one who said Skynet. <laughs> I no, Matt's the one who said Skynet first. <laughs> yes, I I did I did drop that into the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but it's just, I, I think this kind of thing is just, it, it gets the media attention is because, you know, it's it, it because of, it's sensational. And I, I feel yeah. that this guy doesn't even, you know, provide the information. How was this AI program in the first place? Yeah. You know, and, and, and it was just lack of those research <laughs> backstory of all these things. So I'm like, mm, okay, but I'm, I'm more interested in like how much more we can explore with the AIs. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting point because that's, that's one of the big issues here. We don't know how it's programmed because Google doesn't allow us to know. Um, Facebook has just uh, allowed outside academics to actually look at its AI. Google hasn't made that decision yet. Um, and yes, I totally agree with you on the, the, the point about it being a, a sensational story. But one of the issues here is that once these machines become commonplace, once Siri, once Alexa start to use uh, AI of this kind of complexity and depth, it's going to be very easy for machines to pass as human, mm. um, just at that very basic level. So one of the reasons that it is important to talk about this story is that we have to be aware that the machines that aren't sentient are able to pass that Turing test to convince us that they are a person. So we have to be aware, like I said, of that sociopath within in order to interact successfully with the growing complexity of artificial intelligence. Okay, well, um, I just want to assure listeners that the three of us are real and, <laughs> and not just... I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, damn it. Been found out. It can be unreal at sea. <laughs> I, no, if people were going to invent, they wouldn't invent us. <laughs> be no point well, no, I mean, there's a there's a growing um, body of um, uh, computer science-based philosophers who think that we may be a simulation of another advanced intelligence. I, I, I asked you about the Matrix thing and you said it wasn't going to happen. No, 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 that's, that's different. That's machines controlling people. It's all the same. This is another, uh, our entire universe is a creation, a, a computer simulation run by another advanced simulation. A bit like, um, uh, what's it, the Stephen King novel, Under the Dome. Okay. All right. Well, uh, once again, Matt Armitage ends on a cheerful note. <laughs> and uh, he always does. And so uh, we move on, though, to um, recommendations, final part of the show, recommendations where we recommend something that we think might be of interest, and Yazid goes first. Oh, man. Can I go second? Okay, I'll go first then. And my recommendation, I was going to do something else, but I want to follow on from Yazid's. I think I'm, I'm not sure if I've recommended this book before, but I'm really fascinated by the pre-colonial maritime Southeast Asia trading world that, that, that existed for thousands of years. Um, and there's plenty of evidence to show that there was trading from Alexandria to Java. I mean, beyond, sorry, Bali, beyond. I mean, there, there are Roman coins found in Bali and um, pottery and such as well. It, it was a, this side of the Suez Canal, which didn't exist, was the biggest economy by far. People living in greater luxury, long, longer lives, and trading was the way. So in, in the peninsula, for instance, people didn't grow food. They weren't farmers. 
because one, it's really infertile here, and two, you traded for stuff. So you'd go in the jungle, or someone else would go in the jungle, and you'd come out with jungle goods, or you'd find tortoise shells, or even coconuts for that matter, and you'd go up to uh, Myanmar and trade for rice. You didn't grow rice here. Why would you? You need so much fertilizer. So uh, there's a wonderful book called Empires, uh, sorry, Empire of the Winds by a uh, journalist historian called Philip Bowering. And he charts this world and this trade matrix. And it's, um, it's just really fascinating. And I think, Yazid, you might enjoy these kinds of books because you are following in an ancient tradition. You're a, you're, you're, I'm not going to join you. <laughs> but, what about just in the river? <laughs> in the river. Actually, if you were to go up and down a river, I'd yeah. go with you. Can you? Okay. Would you? Yeah, well, it's the river. I mean, we're, we're sailing on the river first before we get to the sea. Yeah, no, I want to go, I want to go like right as far up the Pahang River or whatever. Oh, or that kind of river. Okay, then yeah. sailing boat won't reach those no. areas because of shallow water. No, but, no, of course. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so... Uh, Empire of the Winds, Philip Bowering. There, but there are other books as well. Check them out and, and just look into the world of um, the pre-colonial maritime Southeast Asia. It's fascinating, but it's in our minds. We can't help but think that history began with Alfonso de Albuquerque taking Malacca, but there was so much more before that. So um, now I come back to you, Yazid. Okay, so... Okay, uh, can I suggest just checking out something on the internet, which I find fascinating. And um, I'm actually producing a documentary about satellite at the moment. And I'm about to witness a launch of satellite in French Guiana next week. Ooh, so I'm flying wow. off to French Guiana and I'm about to witness this satellite. Sorry, this rocket is going to launch three, if I'm not mistaken, three satellites. And one of them is ours, owned by Miasat. So, um, and what I find throughout research of producing doc this documentary is like there are dozens of thousands of satellites orbiting our earth and um, a lot of them is actually on the, on the lower and mid orbit uh, in our lower and mid orbit they call it Leo and Neo and uh, these are the kind of satellites that you can find that gives us uh, images like Google Earth and our GPS like Waze and Google traffic and then uh, the higher ones which was mostly for communication which is on the geostationary orbit uh, which is about 36,000 kilometers away uh, it's uh, mostly for communications and uh, TVs and uh, phones and uh, satellite phones and etc et so uh, but it's fascinating how these man-made objects are actually surrounding our earth Mm. And you could, you know, there was this image on Twitter that I saw, like, you know, I think it was probably real time and how many, how many uh, uh, satellites are orbiting our Earth from, from the northern hemisphere to the south. And, uh, and, then, and, then, and, then, and a lot of them is also on an equator, in our equator. And, uh, and then uh, all, this, all these steel objects are, 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 are having their own um, use. For us, for, for, for humanity. And what's most what's more interesting is that these things have a lifespan. Life, uh, there's a lifespan, like it's about 15 to 18 years. And then after that, whatever that, that leftover fuel that they have in the satellite, it will be sent up higher up, not being bring back. Uh, some of them were brought back to Earth, but especially the one on the geo, which is the, the really high ones, 
they are sent higher up, like about 300 kilometers higher to a graveyard. And when you know, when you heard of space debris, like in Gravity, that movie, where there was a, some objects are flying and then hit uh, their space station, the character space station. And these are, um, the space debris is actually a big problem now in our orbit. So, um, and I learned about that too. And I find that, you know, the fact that there is a, this huge graveyard with, with metal pieces that were just, uh, that were just inoperable and are uh, deep in being decommissioned, uh, just flying around our earth and not just this one that we're still in use, there's a lot more that we're not using or we used to use. Uh, it's just fascinating, and go and check out like uh, how many satellites uh, are there around around surrounding our Earth, and it's fascinating, and the technology of it, and how they throw. Okay, movies. that's one of the more peculiar recommendations, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> that we've had. But yeah, and also that these are also recent. I mean, the last fifty years or something, right? Yep. Yep. And suddenly yep. there are thousands. In Sputnik. Yeah, Sputnik yeah. made their way. Yeah. 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 Okay, so Yazid's uh, recommendation is well whatever you, this dear listener, thought it was. <laughs> Something to do with satellites. Uh, so, uh, Matt, what's yours? Gosh, mine's going to sound really boring by comparison yeah. to, uh, yeah. you know, the whole of space. Um, <laughs> no, th- uh, th- this is a, a book as well. Uh, it's a book called Guitar Zero. It's by a professor of cognitive scientist called Gary Marcus. Now, um, I came back across him this week because he'd written an article about this whole Lambda debacle called Nonsense on Stilts. And then I realized that he was the author of the book Guitar Zero that I'd read a few years ago, which was actually the inspiration for me to start learning guitar in my, you know, mid forties. He did the, the same thing. He had no sort of musical background. Um, he took up playing, uh, I think when he was about 42, he wanted to challenge himself that within a year he could not play, you know, fantastically, but to a standard where he didn't kind of disgust himself. Um, but the book itself is not really so much about his journey to playing. It's more a discussion on, um, the kind of uh, the neuroscience of music, the plasticity of the brain. It goes into these ideas um, of uh, whether a genius is just about 10,000 hours of practice, um, how much is about aptitude. Uh, it goes into the, the, the development of language and music and how they parallel and diverge from one another. So it's just a, a fascinating read really about neuroscience but with this backdrop of a middle-aged man learning to play the guitar and as i said that was the reason that i can now play guitar very very badly uh, uh yeah i was going to ask one that's fast sounds fascinating uh I'm, i must check that out but two how good are you or bad are you on the guitar um i'm good enough now to play badly whereas I didn't think that I would ever get to the stage where I would be able to, you know, get through songs sufficiently well enough to call it bad playing. So you can play like House of the Rising Sun? No, Stairway no, no. I mean, uh, uh, Stairway to Heaven, I mean, you get a bit bored trying that one. What was I trying this week? I've been, uh, I've been doing mostly post-punk stuff for the last few weeks, a bit of Franz Ferdinand this week, oh. um, yeah, <laughs> Young Knives. So, um, you know, wh- whatever I can find tutorials for on the, the internet, I just 
um, have a chug through them. I've, I've got my bar chords down. I can now start doing a, a bit of picking and uh, start doing cool. riffs and stuff. Acoustic or electric? Uh, electric. I'm still terrible on the, uh, the acoustic because it, it requires so much more strength in your your hands it's much easier actually to play the electric than it is the, the and it's acoustic. much more forgiving and much more forgiving yeah i mean i tried yeah because you can put a distortion pedal on and nobody can yeah. hear your <laughs> mistakes and something you're the sex pistol yeah exactly and i you know i tried for about two years with an acoustic guitar and it was just awful and i made no progress and i switched to electric and as Yazid says, it's much more forgiving. So I was able to forgive myself and to move on. And you get get to that point where you can make those little breakthroughs and stuff without thinking, I'm terrible and throwing the guitar back mm. in a corner and not going back to it for two that, weeks. So that's over at like what one year? Uh, no, I've been playing I've been playing for about five years now. Oh, but okay. I, like I said, so well, for about virtuoso by now. Yeah. No, not at all. I mean for two years it was with acoustic, I was terrible. Then for a year I didn't really do much. And then maybe kind of a year, year and a half ago, sort of more during the pandemic, I, I guess, I started playing electric more and started, you know, actually buying a slightly better electric guitar and getting it set up properly. That was the big key, actually getting the guitar set up because uh, they're very often not very playable, especially if you're a beginner when you buy them from the store. Wow. So during pandemic, uh, Yazid learned to sail a boat. You learned how to play a guitar. I'm, what the hell did I do? What was I doing? I could... <laughs> Nothing. Okay, we're going to finish off with the question that I promised I would ask earlier. Yazid, if any of our listeners want to go sailing, how should they go about that? All right. So there are many, there, there are a few actually sailing clubs uh, in, in Klang Valley. Uh, and also, there, you know, uh, in Panko and also in Langkawi. Langkawi is quite, it's quite, um, quite happening there. So there are some sailing clubs there. So uh, if you are in Klang Valley, you can go to this my club, which is the Peninsula Sailing Club in Marina Pulau Inda, in near Westport. And also, if you are, uh, and you can also go to the Royal Slango Yacht Club in Port Klang, where they have a bigger boats and that you can try on. And which is my club, they were using squibs, and then the, the Royal Slango Yacht Club they're using. Uh, like 225 and there are bigger boats that you could charter i think if you know the owner so um so yeah you could do that uh on weekends uh you know and uh, it's it won't be costly for the smaller boat and then um and go out and have fun at sea and see a lot of container ships around port clang and and you know like why we why we're paying a lot of money right now to for our goods because these container ships get stuck at sea sometimes you can see right. that they're yeah. stuck there so well, yeah you, you could do that and it's fascinating i would recommend for every for anyone who loves sea and not afraid of being having dark skin to go in and and sail and learn sailing you make it sound fantastic ultimately i am more interested in learning the guitar like matt <laughs> than getting onto a boat with you but uh, but uh, good luck to anybody who wants to try. Matt, are we, could you see yourself on a boat? Um, I mean, I like I said, I prefer the ones with, with engines. engines. Yeah, yeah. I, right. it's and the, casinos and swing pools. <laughs> well, no, not 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 so much that. I think it's just that um, I haven't got the peripheral vision to get out of the way of the uh, uh, the, the the mast or the boom as it comes, you know, tacking over my head or whatever the terms All I'm right. misquoting are. Um, so I, I'd just be worried about dying. Right. Well, I think it's fantastic what you're doing, Yazid. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm so glad you're doing it. 
terrifies the hell out of me, but uh, it's fantastic. Okay, so that brings us to the end of this week's show. And uh, so it only remains for me to say ahoy to Ahmad Yazid. That's, <laughs> that's sailor talk, Yazid. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, they <laughs> didn't teach you we that. We don't really say that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and then what's the point? That's how I'm like, mm, I don't know how to respond. <laughs> yeah, avast, things like that. Um, and uh, and also to um, Matt Armitage. Thanks, Cam. I'll be heading westward. Ho. Oh, you see, this is the kind of this is the kind of language you're going to have to learn, Yazid, to be a real oh, sailor. Wow. <laughs> yeah, okay. pieces of eight and. Uh, <laughs> Okay, and uh, so that brings us to the end of the show. And myself, Cam Rustland, please join us next week for another exciting episode of A Bit of Culture here on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, the business station.